morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever and whenever you may be, and welcome to episode 46 of the Fade to Black podcast. I'm Clarice Lockery. I'm Hannah Flint. And I'm Amon Woman. This week, Bradley Cooper is having a mare in Guillermo del Toro's <laughs> Nightmare Alley. <laughs> Grieving parents come together after a school shooting in mass. Kenneth Branagh takes us back to his troubles youth in Belfast. And a mother and daughter connect through teen diaries in Memory Box. Also, Oman speaks to Denzel Washington and Michael B. Jordan about a journal for Jordan. Not a biography. I imagine it's different <laughs> Jordans. <laughs> Plus, for our hot take, we talk movie runtimes. Is there a perfect length? Name of your sex tape. <laughs> Someone's a Brooklyn Nine-Nine fan. <laughs> that's what she said (laughs) (laughs) I want to now I don't want to say I've been blindsided (laughs) (laughs) gang friends beloved people in my life how have your weeks been well, I gotta say, Clarice, it's been it's been a bit of a tough one for me because you see, the thing is, I can't tell the difference between my waking life and my dreams. Between my waking life, I can't tell between my waking life and my dreams. <laughs> oh dear, oh dear, Oscar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we should I mean, mention that that is from the Moonlight trailer. We're not just doing, you know, weird voices and whatever. <laughs> um, I will say though, it does explain. Like, if I want to give this the benefit of the doubt, like benefit of the doubt, if this is a character, like what is it? Stephen Grant is like the character who's the Mockney, it, and obviously Mark Spector is like you know mercenary barber who's like one of his personalities right mm-hmm. maybe that explains because he doesn't know how to do because he's not actually from stepney green <laughs> it's like his character is like doing his terrible accent because that's what his approximation is in this identity so mm-hmm. if that's what it is i'll accept it that's the only excuse <laughs> that's the only excuse i will accept I it it's not i feel like that's not I, based in in much reality i feel like people with disassociative identity disorder are not like hello here's my other you know well like if, if, if the history of cinema is to be believed they're all bloody psycho killers uh so yes. i think we have to take this whole dissociative identity disorder with a massive wow. pinch of salt uh, salt i may have written about that this week Yes. Check out Digital Spy about yes, the history I did see this. of um, in Scream and, and other horror movies. Uh, yeah. So yeah, I would be interested in how this show deals with it because uh, you know Marvel has been this movement about positive representation, and I'll be interested to see if do we get positive representation out of this or is it just going to be like um crazy pew pew speaking <laughs> of. Um, Leaping into the moon. <laughs> Speaking of um, representation, I saw a tweet um, about apparently um, Harry Styles' Eternals cameo. He plays Eros, who is 
Thanos's brother and Eternal, a Titan form of Eternal, Star Fox. Um, Star mm-hmm. Fox. Because <laughs> he fucking does. <laughs> um, I, and I saw someone saying that he's got like, he's going to have like a Disney Plus series and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, hmm. He's a sex pest. His powers include charming people into getting women into bed. And there's like a whole... And I wondered then, is this going to be part of She-Hulk? Is he going to pop up in She-Hulk? Because that series is based on Dan Slott's 2005 run. And in that, there's a whole thing about like Star Fox on trial for sexual predation. So it'd be interesting, wouldn't it? It's like, you can't just introduce that character and just be like... Oh yeah! Oh, awkward. <laughs> it's really weird. Like in this day and age, <laughs> of all the Marvel yeah. characters you could introduce, <laughs> let's introduce the sex yeah. test. <laughs> yeah, I I hear you, but like Marvel have done a pretty good job of revamping problematic characters from the comics on screen. You think about what Embargo the Mind Ape was before Black Panther the movie. And there's a lot of negative stereotypes with that. But what Ryan Coogler did with that was like revamp that character, make him sort of a leader in his own right of the Jabari tribe. And, you know, Winston Duke absolutely killed the role to the point where he has been given uh, a, a bulked up role in the sequel, um, which I'm very, very excited for. I think there's a little bit of a difference between uh, gross racial stereotypes and, you know, retconning that and having a character whose powers is to basically trick people. It's kind of like um, Druig. Like, it would be like if Druig used his powers to get people to fuck it. Like, because that's the similar, it's mind control, isn't it? And it's sensuous and get people to feel like, I mean, look, (laughs) it's a really problematic superpower. And I just think it's interesting. Of course, it's Disney and Marvel, I'm sure. But it'd be interesting, (laughs) like, like how, how, you know, what's interesting is the Avengers this whole series was based kind of on the Ultimates, which was the Mark Miller kind of version of it. But one thing that was part of that was that um, Hank Pym was abusive to um, to Janet, Janet Van Dyne. Mm-hmm. So, but they didn't include that into this narrative. And obviously giving it to Scott Lang, it kind of takes away that sort of element of it and, you know, kicking her out into the quantum realm. <laughs> Certainly <laughs> deals with that kind of awkwardness. Um, so, you know, sometimes they don't even confront it. So we'll see. That's true. Anyway. I will say, the, the Moonlight trailer as a whole, I'm not feeling it just yet. I, you know, I, I feel like it can be interesting for all the reasons you say, uh, and the suit looks great. Um, but as a first trailer, I'm, I'm not, my, my, my hype is not there yet. And I, I do expect that to change. You know, there'll be more footage released in the days and weeks leading up to uh, the debut of the show on March 30th, I believe. Um, but, but yeah. What do, what, do you, what do you think of the trailer as a whole? Are you, are you really excited? No. <laughs> I want to see what May <laughs> Kalamawi, I want to see what character she's playing. Because uh, she's like, considering the origins of <laughs> Moon Knight's powers, uh, another of the many superheroes that have powers from Egypt, but no Egyptians to be seen. Uh, but she's <laughs> Egyptian-Palestinian, so I'm interested to see what character she plays. Clarice, though, I feel like we've we've had our little Marvel <laughs> nerd off. Um, how was your Bo- Boba Fett experience this week? Mm. Well, that <laughs> ending 30 seconds. Oh. Hello. Hi. I don't know why. Blow on those pan pipes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't want to spoil it for anyone who maybe hasn't watched the episode yet, but... Um, I feel like 
I will say my overall comment on the show is that I'm enjoying it. I'm really enjoying what they're doing with Boba Fett. I know lots of people on the internet are not a big fan of it, but I I like that he's an animal lover <laughs> and he's so like sweet with his bantha um yeah. and and that we're, we're learning all these new things about this character who for much of his history has just been like guy in helmet who goes pew pew on his jetpack uh <laughs> this has been really nice to give the space to explore him and you know this idea of of somebody who is <clears throat> like kind of without home without family like what kind of person would that be uh it's really cool i just i feel like they're building up to something and i want to see that the thing that they're building up to now because i'm very impatient <laughs> <laughs> yeah and also it's taken a while to get to this point like i think both me and i think we could all agree that episodes one to three could have been condensed we could have had this episode yeah. last episode rather than now but one thing i think is interesting to see is like how and i think this is a problem with star wars uh well certain corners of the star wars fandom is the need for boba fett to be this like uber violent all the time like stoic kind of character who doesn't make friends who doesn't you know what i mean be a bit more leaning into the mando like kind of original thing before baby grogu so that what's frustrating for them, they're like, oh, but he's not this cool person anymore because he actually is conscientious and he cares, even though he's got his own like sense of, I don't know, he's a bit like Omar, he's got his own sense of like code. <laughs> um, and I find some people are just being really over the top and like saying, I don't know, they can't accept for mm. this for what actually it is. It's quite a positive <laughs> rather than being. I like totally him. He's sweet. I, I don't think it's necessarily that, Tony. I think what people are more getting at, at least in my mind, is that you look at the Boba in The Mandalorian Season 2 and you think about how Boba went through a battalion of stormtroopers like they were nothing. And it was one of the coolest things in that entire season. There's a base level of competence in Boba Fett right now, which is missing. Like, we've gone from that. Think about that scene where he's taking out everyone, left, right, center, diagonal, horizontal, everywhere. And then he can't commandeer a droid without Fennec's help? It's just like, come on. There's a, there's a base level of competence Yeah, that but he's missing, never been a droid right guy. That's like No, but I'm sorry. If you set, can do that no to Stormtroopers, then you, you, you should be able to kick a lot more... Like, it feels like watching Boba right now, he would not get anywhere without Fennec. And that is a little bit disappointing, considering the badassery we've seen from Boba previously. So I'm hoping that we see more of that in the final three episodes going forward. I also liked the final 30 seconds I don't know what you mean. Well. He like, but, took out a whole bloody... The train. He took out, like, helped the train. He also took out that gang of the people. He, 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 played, but like, he, he, had, he had a lot of help. And the, the gang people, maybe not so, but the, the, the train, he had a lot of help. Like, the... The, the guy who trained him, uh, the, the, the Tuscan who trained him, uh, took out a whole bunch of people himself um, and really helped out. I it just Maybe he's never come across a little rat droid. Like, they seem like slippery well, he, individuals. He, he, like, he, sh he shouldn't have to have already come across a rat droid to commandeer a rat droid. There's lots of stormtroopers. <laughs> They're a bigger target. You know, and he was caught off guard. Like, so what? He's human. He's, well, he's whatever they are. And, uh, he's a humanoid. <laughs> and, uh, also, what I like is that 
it's like Boba and Fennec are they're different people like Boba is like he is kind of about the brute force and the hand-to-hand combat and she's and yeah she's yeah she's the sharpshooter she's she's quicker she's an assassin she... he's a hunter there's a yes. totally different skill set for it there's a bit the ability for her the fact that I mean some of the things where he just oh god we're talking with those about this but like when she just like turns <laughs> up like si- the silence she's a ninja she has that ability to make herself not being seen like she, I, I think she's a better tactician and I don't, there's a difference between being a bounty hunter and being an assassin. They're two different jobs, dude. Also <laughs> makes sense with like the Boba Fett that was in Return of the Jedi. Like, you know, <laughs> he wasn't perfect either. Yeah, dude got pushed into a fucking Starlight <laughs> exactly. pit. Like, he like, 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 <laughs> Don't overestimate. I, yeah, I exactly. Like, yeah. like <laughs> I, see, you say all these things and I hear you, but... Think about, go back and rewatch that scene that I'm talking about in The Mandalorian. That was like, you know, after the turn, that, that, that's like, what, only a few weeks, months before where where Boba has taken place. And he is like but, the coolest dude in that scene. But you're missing the point. They're different things. You're trying to say that a stormtrooper is the same as a rat droid that can walk into a thing where it's like got fire. He can't do that. He can't go put his I'm not saying it's the same. I'm He'll saying a rat droid is a lot lesser than a, than a stormtrooper. <laughs> but I think there's a difference when you're taking on a bigger threat in an open open environment than that. I, I honestly mm. believe that. I honestly believe that. And if 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 that hurts your feelings... You know what? Say, save it for 4chan, Amon. <laughs> <laughs> think, think about how many times this season Boba has gotten his ass whooped. You know what? It's like at least three though. times. This whole mythology about Boba Fett. Dude was in a holiday. <laughs> like, like, you all act as if he's like this, like, like you've built it up. Did you see it's the It's like stupid <laughs> man, like, man, Boba, man. It's like, dude, let him, he's like suffering. He's been through trauma. He just wants I to am. have a community. He just wants a tribe and he wants help. <laughs> and he's not, and you know what the best thing about Boba is? He's not afraid to ask for help. Yes. Well, that's what I like about Boba is that he knows what his skill sets are and he knows his strengths and weaknesses. And I do think the show has been consistent about that. He's never been like the greatest fighter of all time. <laughs> and also, he's benevolent because that little rat droid is working for him now. Oh gosh. Makes sense. He doesn't lose a droid. <laughs> now he has another droid. So instead of killing it, it's just shut down. And now he's got it. So actually, there we go. Good sense. Good sense. He I can't love even that get droid. to it without Fennec's help. All right. The great Boba Fett. Are you kidding me? <sighs> Sorry, but like, like. <laughs> Let's take like Dwayne Johnson, one of the strongest, like, yes, just can do everything. You think that guy is trapping a mouse in his house without any help? No, different skill set, different skill (laughs) set. Speaking of skill sets, Denzel Washington. I don't. I don't know what he if he'd be able to trap a small droid. <laughs> be a great question to ask him. <laughs> but we are going to chat uh, Jennifer Jordan a little bit, which is directed by Denzel Washington, and this is the trailer for it. What's this? It's a journal, so you can write to your son. What do I write? Tell him who you are, what you believe in, and tell him you love him. Dear Jordan, the moment I met your mother, 
I knew she was the one. He is not exactly my type. When you try your best, but you don't succeed. And after some convincing, she fell for me too. So, yes, Denzel Washington returns to the director's chair six years after Fences with this fact-based romantic drama about a New York Times journalist and the relationship she had with her son's soldier father. I caught up with Denzel and lead star Michael B. Jordan to talk about the celebration of black love. And here is our brief chat. Welcome to the Faith of Black podcast, Dana Kennedy and Denzel Washington. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Congratulations on the film. I really enjoyed it. Um, Denzel, I know that you were attached to this project as a producer for a number of years. What was it that made you finally want to say, I want to direct it as well? Uh, In a a script, uh, uh, 2018, we, we, we worked on it for... 12 years, it took that long, it took Todd Black, my producing partner, that long, and working with Virgil Williams, and they, they got this a script uh, in 2018 that they shared with me, and I was like, wait, well, shoot, I love it, I, I dire- I'll direct this, I, I didn't plan on directing this, I guess what I'm saying, I was just planning on producing it. Yeah. Um, Dana, Shante Adams plays a younger version of you mm-hmm. in this film, and she's absolutely Not fantastic. Not that much younger. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna try and save you, my son. I was gonna try and save you. I was like, oh, no, go. Oh, there he goes. Oh gosh. In our story, she. I'm sorry. She goes from 26 to 44 in our story. We, yeah. But I'm sorry. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. yeah. Um, how tricky was it to strike that balance of here's what you need to know about me? but also giving her the space as an actor to discover and improvise and all of that. It's a great question. She spent a lot of time talking to me, and she said, you know, I just, your opinion is the one I care about most. I want to get this right. And I said, listen, you're bringing your talent to this, your heart to this. Denzel trusts you. you got to stop worrying about me and make it your own. I trust you with the character of me, and so make it your own and forget about me. I don't think she entirely did that, but I think I could see that in that moment she relaxed. And um, she had everything she needed uh, to do just what she did, which was an incredible portrayal. Oh, my gosh. I don't know if that was her now. Denzel, because it's you, because it's you, I'll I'll allow that. I'm so sorry. (laughs) All right. I thought that was turned off. I apologize. I'm mortified. (laughs) It's fine. Um, When I speak with directors, it's clear to me that they are excellent problem solvers. Uh, because inevitably something goes wrong on the film set and they have to figure their way out of it. Denzel, was there anything that was particularly challenging in that regard on Journal for Jordan, and how did you navigate that? Well, you know, the the first three films I directed, I, I had at the end, and there was less time to pay attention. So I had all the time I, I needed to pay attention and... and uh, and I enjoyed that. I love that. I prefer that, actually. So it's really just getting out of the way, letting, letting those young people take over, let Michael and, and Shante and, uh, and the other actors inhabit the space and, uh, and get out of the way. Yeah. This question is for both of you. If any of the characters Denzel has played on screen had kept the journal, which one would you most want to read and why? I would say for me, the Book of Eli character. Mm-hmm. because um, his path to God, uh, to doing God's work, and the fact that he wouldn't let anything stop him um, is a reflection, actually, of the Denzel that I know, the man. Uh, so I would read that journal. 
Uh, they give me the rap. Uh, I've been such a big fan of yours for years, thank Denzel. So thank you. thank you for your time. Thank you. And Denzel, it's great to meet you too. Thank you. Great. Appreciate it very much. Yeah. Thank you. Great film. <laughs> thank, thank you. you. Hello, Michael B. Jordan. Welcome to the Fate of Black podcast. What's good? What's good, man? Good to meet you, sir. I've been a big fan uh, for a while. I really enjoyed this film, so congrats. Um, Appreciate it. Let's start it. with this. I've heard these. I've heard you say that you haven't done anything like this before. This is a bit of a departure for you. Was there a day during filming when things really clicked for you in this role, or did reading then kind of this book give you everything that you needed? No, I just think the process. You know, I, they, they, it's just the process. There wasn't there wasn't a single moment where everything just kind of said, "Ah." Oh. It was just <laughs> uh, you know, it, it's uh, you know we do the homework, we prep, we prepare. And uh, and when we get to set, we we uh, we do what we got to do. But it, it was you know we had so many powerful moments on set that uh, you know you know it, it was it was definitely you know meant to be in a lot of in a lot of ways. If any of the other characters you've played on screen kept the journal, which one would you most like to read and, and why? You said if what? If any of the other characters you've played before uh, kept the journal, which one would you most like to read and why? Uh, maybe Killmonger. I mean, I mean, I have journals for them anyway, but there's a, there, yeah, probably Killmonger is probably, is the most probably complex and layered, I would think. Yeah. Mm. So journals are part of your process for every character? Yeah, I do, I do backstories for all my characters that I play, um, which is important. I picked it up from from Denzel, actually, a long time ago. Denzel and, and, and Nate Parker, actually. So, yeah, yeah. Fantastic. Um, I know you're getting ready to make your directorial debut with Creed Three, which I'm very excited for. Uh, what themes are you looking to explore in that film, and how excited are you to work with Jonathan Majors? Oh, very excited, man. He's, uh, he's extremely talented. Uh, first started talking, we just clicked. And uh, looking forward to you know what he's going to bring to the table and us you know collabing together. It's going to be it's going to be it's going to be uh, I think it's going to be pretty cool. Yeah, no, I'm very excited for that. And just on that, you know, this is your directorial debut. You're working alongside Denzel Washington. I'm sure that you've peeled a lot from other directors. But what sort of questions were you asking Denzel, and what sort of answers would you would he give you that you're taking into Creed Three and beyond? I think for me, it's just you know very few directors that have acted as well and um, in the sense of like directing themselves in a movie. So um, I know he's done it uh, briefly before. So um, just kind of advice on, you know, how to do both at the same time, you know, and it's going to be difficult, yeah. but I'm, uh, you know, he, he gave me some gems and I'm looking forward to it. Fantastic. Well, as I say, big fan of your work. And, thank you. Um, really, really enjoyed this film, so congrats, and thank you so much for your time again. All good, man. Appreciate you, bro. I will ask you simple questions. You will answer in short sentences only what you believe to be absolute truth. Absolute truth. I can do that. Now, brief as you can, what is your name? Stanton Carlisle. Are you a true medium? Yes, I am. I want to go to the carnival, but I know it'll cost me $60 now. I want to go to the carnival, but I know it'll cost me my life now. Round, round, round. <laughs> Bit of uh, bikini kills uh, for any fans out there. Uh, <laughs> it was <laughs> that or get your freak on. <laughs> <laughs>
Should have so gone to get your feet caught, Hannah. No, Bikini Kill's <laughs> iconic, actually. Allow yourself. Go listen to it. It's a very, the, the opening of that song has a very, it's like a spoken word thing. And uh, it's, I urge you to go out and find it and listen to it. Come on, go listen to it at some point and then text me when you hear it. It's like, you'll be like, pearl <laughs> clutching. Yeah, they're great. Okay. okay. In 1940s, New York, down on his luck, Stanton Carlyle endears himself to a clairvoyant and her mentalist husband at a travelling carnival. See, carnival, it makes sense. Using newly acquired knowledge, Carlyle crafts a golden ticket to success by swindling the elite and wealthy. Hoping for a big score, he soon hatches a scheme to con a dangerous tycoon with help from a mysterious psychiatrist who might be his most formidable opponent. Formidable opponent yet. Directed by Clarice's dad, Guillermo del Toro, from a screenplay (laughs) by del Toro and Kim Morgan. It's based on the 1946 novel of the same name by William Lindsay Gresham. It's the second adaptation. There was one in 1947, I believe. And the film stars Bradley Cooper as uh, Stanton with Kate Blanchett, Tony Collette, Willem Dafoe, Richard Jenkins, Rooney Mara, Ron Perlman, Mary Steenburgen and David Strathern. So, it would be rude, it would be totally rude if I did not come to Clarice first on this. But I suppose, <laughs> and what I'd love to, as as uh, as soon to be Del Toro's biographer, um, I want you to tell me where it stands, what it says about where he is right now, and how I suppose there's a through line for all his work that we've got here, got to here too. Hold on, before yeah. you go there, Hannah, I'm I'm getting I'm getting a premonition. Hold on, I'm gonna try and see what Clarice is thinking here. I'm, I'm getting I'm making a connection, I'm making a connection. <laughs> she loves it. No. <laughs> oh my god! How did you know? Oh my god! Oh, that's scary. <laughs> uh, yes, I did love it. I loved it so much. I'm obsessed with it. Uh, unsurprisingly, I what's really fascinating about Nightmare Alley is it's the first of his feature films that does not have a supernatural entity in it. And in fact, you know, the film's uh, depiction of mentalism and occultism is quite cynical. It's, you know, the supernatural in this movie is only used by charlatans to try and manipulate people. And you know, it, that that's really interesting to me because so much of his work has been about outsider figures and exploring the monster as the outsider but he's always said this thing of like oh the thing that really scares me are um people like the real monsters are people (laughs) and i think nightmare alley is like his formal thesis on that idea and it's such a good uh it's also like he doesn't tend to adapt things usually he writes his own work unless it's like obviously he did blade and he did hellboy so he's dealt with other people's material before but uh this is a rare uh novel adaptation from him and it's a really good mesh of uh like person and author if you read about uh william lindsay gresham's life it's fascinating like biography at a very sad end and i think reading that and then watching nightmare alley it a lot of things will click. I'll say that. Mm. Well, I I mean, look, I would not say I'm a Del Toro scholar like you, Clarice, but there was very clear <laughs> to me, like, 
there's a really nice marriage of like his I suppose visual accent like what he does but then also kind of like film noir that kind of storytelling and you could kind of I love the way it kind of you know weaved in together I mean the most basic thing you can say is like he loves an eye (laughs) he loves (laughs) an eye our Guillermo um but I suppose for you Amon did you did you I suppose I think let's like talk about aesthetics I think that's just I think that's what you go into this for you kind of love the world that he creates and did you quite um relish this kind of carny landscape I really liked the carny landscape um I've got to say in terms of um, production design and you know the way it looks it's the stuff in the city that really caught my eye uh, because uh, the office that Kate Blanchett's character has is incredible I want to live in that office it's so <laughs> cool and there's a lot of really uh, great production design and great shots of, of, of scenes taking place uh, there um, and that is sort of you know not only because of the production design but because of Uh, those two characters and the way their relationship develops is probably my favourite parts of of the film. Um, So between that and then we haven't even talked about the costume design, lots of great coats, lots of really great dressing gown that Bradley Cooper wears at one point, which I need and want in my wardrobe (laughs) stat. Um, So yeah, on that level, I enjoyed it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think, you know, when you can see it kind of, if any less attention to detail, it might have made this feel a bit, look a bit cheap, but you really feel the texture. You feel like you've been transported back, even like moments where it can look a bit glossy, like overly glossy. I think it kind of manages where it, where it needs to be very like, I don't know, cold. And, you know, when there's scenes where he's with this million, like billion, millionaire Richard Jenkins character, and it's like, it's so cold. You're like, you're getting mm, spoiled. It's like, nothing good happens here. Yeah. <laughs> you're like, something, there's something up there. I, I, I can't remember the exact details, but I think I, I think I sent you guys a tweet a few weeks ago after I saw Nightmare Alley that the actors were working on, like, you know, minus however many degrees and, like, freezing their asses off while they're shooting these scenes. Rooney Mara, especially, because. In the scenes, in one of the scenes you're talking about, she is not wearing much at all. Yeah. So she must have been like, you know, get me a jacket, get me the heaters, get me immediately <laughs> as soon as they call cut, get me heat. Um, because yeah, it did look very cold. Yeah. But then at the same time, what I quite like, even on the carny elements, like, you know, it has this respect where it needed to have respect for this kind of artistic kind of lifestyle. Um, I love the fact that, um, you know, there's Zena and Pete, which is Tony Collette and David Strathairn. So they have this house and it's actually quite a lovely home. It feels lived in. You can feel the love within it. But then you have an other aspect of the carnival and you're just like, oh God, this is just, this is awful. Like it just makes you feel just te- like terror and fear. And I think it managed to balance that really well. So I suppose then... Um, I think let's talk about then story. How do we think? Because it's, it's what, how long is it? About two hour, two and a half hours? It's the first of his movies to go over two hours. Yeah. You know, it's like two and a, two and a bit. And, and it's obviously really? mainly on, mainly on Bradley Cooper's character and kind of his journey. We have a few flashbacks and it seems to be a lot more about men than it is. I suppose the 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 flaws of men <laughs> than it is about women. What did you think, Clarice? 
like the the key for for me in the movie is <laughs> there is this fetus in a jar called Enoch, and he has this big cyclopean eye in the middle of his forehead, and uh, the idea of this this fetus is is he's basically God. He's like some form of God that is always watching everything that Stanton does. And I think the movie really digs deep into that idea of, I guess, like, choice between destiny, the idea of what we hide from the world and what we show. Uh, there's a really key line, I think, I think it's Kate Blanchett says it. Oh, no, I think it is Bradley Cooper who says about um, everybody just wants to be seen. Mm. But it's like, what exactly, what exactly do people want of themselves to be seen i think that's the question that this movie asks because this character is the entire film like i think that pete says yeah he says something and then this they they kind of repeat the line in the office um and yeah he like bradley cooper's character spends this entire movie trying to run away from something and the question is is does he want to be found out does he want to get away with it or does he want to be found out and once you answer that question for yourself the ending makes perfect sense yeah yeah it's so good (laughs) (laughs) and this and it's you know it's all like symbolically there's so many symbols every scene has symbols in it and Mm. once you start connecting how all the symbols link up like it it all just comes back to that single question and that's what i love about nightmare alley and so much of guillermo del toro's work is that there's it's so complete and it, it's so like thorough in its vision. It's not just like cool gothic shit for the sake of it. There's always like a mean. There's a meaning behind every choice, which I really love. As much as I liked a lot of the stuff in the carnival, I did find it a little bit slow moving. And when uh, things moved to the city, and uh, Stan Carlisle meets um, Kate Blanchett's psychiatrist Lilith Ritter, that is where things really clicked into place for me. And cranked up another gear and, and mm. from then on i was like i was i was in it but um but yeah i i, I do feel because i've seen certain uh sort of tweets saying that you know the the pacing's a little bit off it could have been like 20 30 minutes shorter um i think there's a little bit you could have chopped off in uh in the, that opening opening act but once it gets to the city i think it's really really good yeah i i, I disagree i like that setup um and i think it really you've got I think it needed that, especially where we where the journey goes. I do think actually it was the it was the middle bit that was a little bit bloated, um, and I mm. and I also think when you're dealing with, you know, this is not his writing. This is like based on characters, and as much as I, I felt that the characters, the female characters, are just very tropey, as in you've got the femme fatale, you've got the innocent. And then you got like the slut, <laughs> pretty much, and the three main characters. And that felt, even, even as the journey went on, I felt they did, I mean, the actors did, I, I will say no one, no one called anything in, no one phoned anything in. They did very, they did the best they could with the material. Um, uh, but I felt like they were a bit cliched and, and actually even the payoff, like, I think in a way, like the payoff for the, for Stanton storyline I thought was amazing I loved it mm-hmm. I, I just I just felt like the kind of um, motivations for Lilith uh, at the end it was just a bit oh anticlimactical 
and and also a certain element of something else felt a bit like oh okay this is just kind of thrown in but i suppose when i think about it as a whole i think about and i that ending how much that was just like oh my god had me screaming at the at the screen <laughs> in a way it's like yeah. i can forgive that because the the delivery of so many of those elements was just so brutal powerful bloody and beautiful like it was just like that was like artistic artistic delivery of that <laughs> um how did you handle that amon <laughs> yeah no i i thought the ending was terrific i thought i think it might be the best scene of bradley cooper's career and he delivers those lines so powerful it's really powerful and sad at the same time it's it, all of the emotions it's really really good i think i could have done with someone a bit younger playing that character though I don't know. Really? I think I felt very much like Bradley is too like I needed maybe someone in there. I don't know. What did you Clarice, in you... in the in the book? He is. I think he's twenty. He's like nineteen or twenty one in the book. At least uh, at the beginning. Mm. I haven't finished it, but yeah. <laughs> so okay. I I can see where that would come out of because mm. the ages have been changed. I don't think it massively impacts the story because in the writing of the script the character is slightly changed i think he's a little more naive in the book because he is like the fresh-faced kid like going to the carnival mm. Mm, uh, but i get yeah i get where that would come from because he's like bradley cooper's like 47 oh. now um yeah and i would have thought like it would have been if someone was like just turning like about to turn 40 like i think that would have been like i could see like an mm. i could see like an andrew garfield in the role <laughs> <laughs> me just like casting Andrew Garfield in everything now it's so funny because I hated you know I did not like Tick Tick Boom and I loved it but, yeah and it's so funny and I was like I did not enjoy this and like now like as I said as the statute of limitations have now passed for Spider-Man you're just now, making but... up statute of limitations for all I am not stuff. My it's gosh. like come on dude the Die Guys in a million interviews like it's over it, it came out over a month ago it's a month has passed oh, anyway all I'm saying is that <laughs> he if if he wins anything he's won for Spider-Man No Way Home that's that's what he's winning for I wish there was an option I'm... for me to vote for Spider-Man No Way Home because I would have voted for that <laughs> I'd love this to be a running trend that like every review you just go, yeah, I thought the actor was good, but I just feel like gotta put Andrew Garfield in it. <laughs> <laughs> every uh... every movie. <laughs> Little Mermaid. Hmm. Mm, I just think just Ariel so... needed Garfield. <laughs> He's a little, you know. You know. He can sing. <laughs> Getting back to our discussion of Nightmare Alley from five years ago, um, <laughs> I'll just add uh, one more thing, which is I really love the scene, the standout scene in the, in the carnival first act scene is when he um, you know, first gets a hang of the mentalism thing, I guess, in trying to ward away a cop who uh, may or may not be shutting the carnival down. And that scene you can feel you can sense his eyes just light up as like he you know really grabs a hold of this mentalist character who who then sort of go on to develop in the city um i really enjoyed that scene as well well it's yeah when, it's I, it's hubris isn't it it's like the kind of like yeah. icarus flying too close to the sun it's kind of like this age-old story that's been told like people mm -hmm. thinking they're far more 
especially men thinking they're yeah. far more powerful than they actually are and it's like no dude you're just a man okay should we do uh screen stream or skip clarice screen yeah uh. <laughs> screen and scream and scream a bit more and then scream <laughs> and, and then cry do a little yeah. cry at the end <laughs> screen uh get me bradley cooper's dressing gown uh, uh definitely a screen and and i will <laughs> if anyone wants some tarot card uh readings uh i got sent some and i did my own fortune yesterday and it's looking pretty 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 good <laughs> nice <laughs> yeah. It's gonna be good too. So, guys, if you want some tarot readings, I got you. I got you, girl and God. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, this is a change of pace. Uh, get your t- get your tissues out, guys, because it's time for mass. I don't know if I can do it. Richard, Linda, this is Jay and Gail Perry. How are you? I'm fine. Thanks. We want to listen, and we want to heal. What would you like to know? Everything. I want to know everything. Why? Why do I want to know about your son? Because he killed mine. As writing and directorial debuts go, Fran Kranz has picked an extremely sensitive topic to explore. So to set up mass a little bit, years after an unspeakable tragedy tore their lives apart, two sets of parents agreed to talk privately in an attempt to move forward. One couple are the parents of a school shooter, the other are the parents of one of his victims. The film stars Jason Isaacs and Martha Plimpton, Anne Reed Burney and Anne Dowd, uh, four powerhouse performances. Um, where to start with this one? I mean, I'm going to start with the performances because that is very much what this film is, the, is focusing on because it's just four people in a room talking about issues um, I'm not going to ask you to spotlight one or the other because I think they're all equally great. But just on a performance level, what did you make of this film, Hannah? I mean, you just read out the actors' names. Like, the, there is no way they were going to deliver a terrible performance. I mean, I saw this at Sundance over a year ago, and it's obviously just come out now, and I think it played at Sundance London, and London Film Festival. And mm-hmm. I was just blown away by it because I think... You, you know, this could this could easily sit in one room. You know, there's not a lot of movement. There's a kind of top and tail bit, but it relies on these actors being able to keep the kinetic energy up to keep you engaged in something, um, even when the subject matter is very dark. We're talking about mass shooter shooting. You know, we're talking about relationships and and I suppose the friction as well that comes from it. Like, you know, there's a lot of grief and pain and resentment and shame that is like all on the table and um i think there's really what i really like about this film it gives space for every single one of those actors to have a you know a time to shine i love you know anyone who's seen Anne dowd in um the handmaid's tale this is like a far cry from that you know she's a bit there's a kind of like i love the kind of like not hippie but like a kind of hippie dippiness kind of like to who she is. And it's so interesting seeing that contrast with Reed Bernie, who plays her husband. It's like, you can understand a bit about their character, like they're slightly different. And that's why they're together. Um, and it kind of, 
And then you have like the kind of Martha Plimpton and Jason Isaacs, another one who, you know, there's so much that they say or you can kind of infer about their background that isn't said, but it's just there in the performance of like who they, these people are, what they do for a living or like where they work and, you know, how much that all kind of affects how they see the situation. Um, yeah, I thought it's pro- it's just mm. outstanding. And I love Martha Plimpton so much. Yeah. I think for me, what one of the things that was very impressive about this movie, when I went into it, there's a certain sort of, you know, your sympathies are, are with uh, Jason Isaacs and Martha Plimpton's characters because they are the parents of the kid who was shot rather than the parents of the kid who did the shooting. But the film and the script goes to great lengths to showcase both the, to showcase the views from both sides. And you come to an understanding about how and why they feel the way they feel without laying the blame on one or the other. And I thought that was very, very impressive. Clarice, on the script level, what did you think of the film? I, I thought it was so, um, just incredibly constructed, uh, what really stuck out to me that I thought was a like a bold choice, but in a really really smart one, was to uh, open and close with moments that are outside of the actual meeting and confrontation itself, and especially the opening scene. It's just like the woman who works at the church meeting hall in which this meeting takes place, setting up like fussing about tables and chairs. And it really reminds you, like, one of the greatest tragedies is how banal this kind of trauma is. Because these kinds of, you know, in America, these shootings, they happen, like, every day. (laughs) And behind every headline is this experience. It's years and years of trauma. It's lives ruined. And those are the things that don't make it into the news articles, which just, you know they focus on the event itself not the aftermath and so i think that you know the actual writing construction of the meeting is beautifully done it's it's really expansive and empathetic but what really hit home for me was just watching the yeah the really like banal things of the like getting the tissue and fussing over that and at the end mm. they've poured out their heart and souls and they don't really know what to do next so they're like do you want a cup of coffee like like that really hits it home for me. Yeah. I think also the fact, I mean, there's a kind of double meaning of mass in that obviously it's referred to mass shooting, but also where they're be- where this has been held, it's ha- happening in a church. And it's a kind of a sense of, I don't know, it, it, it's kind of uh, the not perfect forum, but I suppose the uh, a significant place to have a conversation like this, because when we talk about forgiveness, and all the stuff that you're supposed to do, but actually, it's not as easy as that. It's not as black as white as uh, black and white as that. There are mm. there are some things that I think also it's like there's some things that we, as much as you want forgiveness, sometimes actually you don't. It's not up to every single person to give it, and you have to just accept that people are just not going to be okay with things. And that's just the way that life is. And you have to accept that people might not have a negative opinion of you or whatever, or how you raised your kids or, or some things like that. That won't change anything. It's how you move on, how you accept that and kind of move on. And I think that's such a really interesting, I think in a wider kind of context, it's like 
how do we get past trauma and tragedy, especially when we struggle to find, I don't know, the space to to totally get closure. Like, how do you live with that? Not forgetting it, but then also trying to live your life as well. Yeah, absolutely. It's definitely not a black and white film and exists in grey and grey, at least from this film, is good. Um, but on that note, uh, let's go to our screen stream or skip recommendations. It is streaming on Sky Cinema right now, but you can watch it in select cinemas in the UK. Hannah, screen stream or skip? I will say screen. And might I add that once you've screened it, might I suggest you tune in on Monday to uh, a new podcast that I've launched, a very limited series one called The First Film Club. Um, and Fran Kranz is our first episode dedicated to Mass and he talks all about how he made it and doing his first directorial debut. And we have six episodes of the first season uh, and we've got quite a few different people in there, casting directors, actors, the director of Heathers. There's a lot in there, so tune in. It's a strip media podcast and so yeah, it's going to be on like all your podcast platforms. So Monday, tune awesome. in. <laughs> so cool. Clarice. Uh, yes, screen, definitely screen if you can and if you can't, stream. Yeah, yeah. I'd also say screen um, because, you know, one thing we didn't talk much about, but it is sort of set in this you know, room and it's just four people talking, pacing around and it feels like you're locked in with them. And I feel like the best way to replicate that feeling is if you're locked into a cinema with no distractions. It's just a dark screen, a dark screen. It's just a dark room uh, with... Uh, the film playing and I feel like it's, it's all the more impactful if you can have those conditions when you watch this one really really good stuff uh we're going from one single room to a whole town because we're going to Northern Ireland for Belfast we all have a story to tell but what makes each one different is not how the story ends but rather the place where it begins. Holy God! Mama says if we went across the water, they wouldn't understand the way we talk. If they can't understand you, then they're not listening. You know who you are, don't you? Open up your eyes, then you'll realize Here I stand with my everlasting love Woo! Woo! I am married to Katrina Bell, that's true You we, too? We are very it's in crazy. love Very in love You're such a... <laughs> Alright, big, like, big love over here Oh, polyamory Polyamory I'm on How many have you got? Shane Lee Woodley oh, Goo Goo and Bathor Raw <laughs> Katrina Bell Endless Pick a lane. <laughs> Can I say I'm attracted to beautiful women? Can I say? No. <laughs> I choose Jakey G. That's the one. I mean, I, I dabble with you, but Jakey G is my one and only. <laughs> anyway, Karise, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> don't pretend like you don't want in on this conversation. Who is your? Well, no, we know. We know it's Tyka, right? No, it's Old Aaron, right? Oh yeah, that's so, that's. Uh, I love yeah, that. Yeah, now we've all that's we can all go on a double date, for. guys. We can all go on a double date, right? <laughs> yeah. Wait, all in, um, like, over Pedro Pascal. Oh, don't make me like, choose like that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to make 
make the other one feel bad. Leave her libido right. alone, Amon. No, it's it's Al- Alden's number one. Yeah, because I just think he's very cool. Uh, he's so cute. I can fit him in my pocket. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> this is Belfast. That that song features in a particular scene where Jamie Dornan croons to Catriona Belf, and it's very lovely. But Belfast is a movie straight from its director Kenneth Branagh's own experience. Set on a street occupied by Catholics and Protestants, a nine-year-old boy and his parents must navigate the growing, increasingly violent conflict plaguing Northern Ireland. Written and directed by Branagh, it stars Jude Hill, Jamie Dornan, Katrina Balfe, Judy Dench, uh, Kieran Hines, and Colin Morgan. I kind of want to start this discussion with a comparison because the automatic thing I think everyone's going to think of is Roma. Very similar constructs, directors, like very well-established and beloved directors looking back at their own childhoods in black and white. (laughs) (laughs) Hannah, how would you say that those two compare? If someone's very familiar with Roma, what can they expect from Belfast? Hmm. Well, I suppose the difficulty is, is that I think... I suppose we have a more of an understanding of what went on, especially for British audiences of that period. You know, there's a lot of films about the troubles or new stuff. So we kind of have a quite, I don't know, uh, visceral understanding of how violent and turbulent that period was. So I can understand some uh some people the, the kind of i suppose the criticism of it being maybe a bit too saccharine like you know what i mean a bit too sentimental in that way um and i think we're, whereas whereas roma yeah and also roma is not from the point is from the not from a point of view of alfonso Cuaron. it's from the may whereas this is supposed to be the kind of like point of view of the young kids so there's yeah there's it's kind of a lot more innocent <laughs> i think um, not that it's, you know, I'm not saying every film about the troubles has to be like that, but there's almost a kind of romantic quality to what it was like. And I suppose the re- reality, maybe from a child's eyes, it might have looked like that, but it never, it never seems to um, really grapple with the true, true horrors of it, even though it does not hint, hint would be an understatement. I think it does kind of dabble in the kind of terror and the situations and I suppose the tenseness and just the conflict really that was that was going on that that forced people out of their homes into other countries yeah I I think you're so right about saying there's such a huge difference in Roma where Alfonso Cuaron took a very conscious effort to step outside of himself and look at his childhood from a different perspective where I think he was allowed to reflect a little more on like what is objective truth about my own memories and what is not i think here like kenneth brenner doesn't really do that this is just what he's obviously you know fictionalized and and you know it's not exactly the same but it's him just looking at his childhood memories without really interrogating them because the film like it is very stylized and i think there are some really beautiful shots of mod what would how did what did you think of the way that it's framed like Kenneth Brown, I know he loves to he loves a Dutch angle. <laughs> How, what did you think about the the look of Belfast? I really liked it. I really liked it. I will say that the um opening scene is one of the most 
attention-grabbing opening scenes I've seen in anything uh, in a while because it goes from colour to everyone playing on the street, having fun, to black and white as uh, we get uh, a riot on the street. And I thought that was really, really well done. Um, and yeah, I, I like the look of the film on the whole. The black and white uh, really worked for me. And then when it does choose to do hints of colour, such as when uh, Jude, the little boy, and his family go to the cinema uh, to watch a film, I found that to be really, really well done too. Mm, and I, this is a movie of performances, I guess you could say. Hannah, what did you think of of Jamie and Katrina and, and Judy and Kieran and everybody and the little boy? I mean, that little Jude was amazing, wasn't he? He's like yeah. so little, gorgeous and precocious and quite funny. He had a lot in common with the Jojo Rabbit, your mate, mm-hmm. Clarice. What's the kid called? <laughs> Um, Roman Griffin Davis. Okay. I'm not friends with a child. I just want to put that out there. <laughs> I'm not hanging out with this is a licorice pizza. That's what I'm I say. That's what, that's what I say. I just say like if it's like if I know that you like, but it's like your mate. That's the thing. Like yeah, well, tomorrow he's your dad. Um, no, that one's true. He is my dad. <laughs> um, yeah, I so I liked him. I like I loved. Uh, Judy Dench, she can do no wrong. Mm-hmm. Although I did see, I mean, I, I don't think I'm qualified to say what is a good uh, Irish accent or not. I mean, it sounded good, mm-hmm. better than most ones I've heard. <laughs> it was certainly better than Matthew Goods in Leap Year. <laughs> um, <laughs> because it's so much from a child's perspective. There's not much, I suppose it's such an outsider look at the real actual situation that was going on with the parents. Like, they're the ones who are having to make this choice about whether they stay. They don't believe in the politics of ousting the Catholics. Like they're having to make this decision. The dad's going away every weekend to work in England because that's where the work, you know. And I and I felt that actually that that whole thing was underserved. So it felt a bit light on actual proper kind of depth. <laughs> like it felt a little bit superficial. And and I will say what's interesting is. We mentioned Everlasting Love. There's a scene where they sing that song, which is very much like the original music, like the music video by Love Affair. And if if anything, I mean, I love a black and white picture, but it also, I suppose, because Jamie Dornan and Katrina Balfe used to be models, (laughs) but it felt like a perfume ad. It just, it kind of just felt like this lovely world. And I suppose in a way I enjoyed it and I enjoyed their performances, but, you know, it it was just easygoing (laughs) pretty much, I felt. Amon, do you, do you agree? I feel like you're about to disagree. Let's hear it. Yeah. Let's go. I'm a little bit disagree. Like, I, on the one hand, I can see sort of, you know, uh, why you're saying that, Hannah. And for me, I um, like the fact that it was focused on this one family and the troubles were in the background. And as you say, there have been many films about the troubles. And I'm sure there will continue to be because it's a very important thing that happened in Northern Ireland. But this particular film had a you know very clear focus, and I get that it's trying to have its cake and eat it too with the different tones. Um, but I liked the thread of optimism that runs through the entire film. Um, yeah, because it didn't it didn't sort of fully discount again what was happening with the troubles with the son played by Jude Hill, who you know is on the verge of joining sort of you know bad people and bad gangs and has to be steered away from that. There is trouble on the fringes, which is always trying to drag this family down with it. And I like the fact that you got 
you, you balance out Jude Hill's character with the old veterans like uh, Dame Judi Dench and Kieran Hines, who are very good at giving very sage advice all the way through, and I enjoyed that thread of it too. So, yeah, on the whole, the balance worked for me. I also thought there's a scene with Katrina Balf and there's a washing powder thing. And I thought that was actually brilliant, <laughs> mm. um, which was kind of like really balanced the kind of horror of the situation, but the humor, finding the humor in something so ridiculous as well, <laughs> uh, which I won't give away, but it was actually quite well handled. And it was like a really good moment for Katrina Bath to kind of like, I don't know, see her kind of like mm. fighting spirit really come out, especially when it's like the conflict. It's honestly so brutal. Colin Morgan, Jesus Christ, man, don't scare me. Merlin, no. And, <laughs> and I guess uh, one thing I'd add, I as Irish American uh, person of Irish descent or whatever, uh, there are some really beautiful lines that I think you know anyone who is Irish or uh, Irish American Irish descent will connect with. I love the line, "The Irish were born for leaving," and the idea that that is so much a part of Irish history, people leaving. (laughs) Uh, It's, yeah, I thought that was really nicely handled. You saying that has made me think about, like, how, like, how it's kind of a, there's also, like, a refugee undercurrent in in a way, in that when you think about what's going on now, of, like, people escaping, you know, violence and stuff to try and get, to get away to a new thing. And it's so interesting that like, mm. apart from Belfast, especially because of the conflict between Ireland, Northern Ireland, English versus, you know, whatever, all that type of stuff. It's like, it's amazing what happens when you can actually, when you actually have the ability to go somewhere. Even though, of course, mm. that's not to negate the xenophobia and, you know, no Irish, no blacks, and no dogs kind of mentality that was in England. But like, mm. you know, the difference is when it, when it happens, when you actually have somewhere where you can actually go rather than you'll be stuck in an asylum center. Just, it was just like, it was quite interesting to see that perspective. And I wonder if also that's why, you know, cause I, I will say like a lot of people who love this film, who like really love this film, it's interesting, the demographic. I'll just leave it mm. as that. <laughs> so let's go to uh, screen, stream or skip. Mm. Amon, what's your take? I'm going to say screen. I, I'll, I'll say that while also saying that the people, because I know that there's a lot of awards attention for this film, I've never really thought of the film in that way, um, but I did enjoy it. Uh, and I would recommend people watch it. Screen. Hannah. Yeah, I'm going to say screen. I mean, I say it looks like a perfume ad. That's, uh, that's not, that's not, automatically a criticism it was very nice to look at and there are some beautiful shots so really good low shots like looking up i really liked um hannah's yeah. about to add jamie dawn jamie dawn into her hannah or what <laughs> I, I don't know what the female equivalent is. i'm gonna, I'm gonna stop talking. jamie dawn is a happily married man of three with three children Amon, i don't go for so what you're saying is you're a home wrecker, i'm not a home wrecker oh i'm not a home wrecker <laughs> you guys you are home wreckers <laughs> I'm not. I'm not a part of this. <laughs> you know who I can wreck nothing wrong. You know who can wreck my home, oh and by home I mean. <laughs> <laughs> Hannah, stop! I'm a very like. I feel like this whole 
like the through line of this podcast is me being horny on Maine. <laughs> being very, yeah, horny and mischievous is how I would characterize you today. <laughs> uh, to add my, I would probably actually say stream. I think it's, I considering what else is out this week, uh, I think this one may be better enjoyed at home. I'm like, if you've got one of those specific cards where you can see unlimited cinema, do a full day. Do what I usually True. do. Triple bill. <laughs> True. Quadruple bill. <laughs> but our next movie is actually kind of similar in surprising ways. It is also about childhood and returning to childhood memories. It is Memory Box. Bonjour. Bonjour. J'ai un colis pour Maya Sanders. Oui, c'est ma mère. C'est pas pour nous. C'est quoi tout ça C'est des cahiers que j'écrivais quand j'étais encore au Liban à une amie qui était partie vivre en France. Memory, all alone in the moonlight. I can dream of the old days. Life was. Turbulent then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I wanted yeah. to. I wanted to get my uh, no lighter cats out. in this movie. <laughs> I'm sorry, no cats. Jennifer, Jennifer, <laughs> is that you? <laughs> <laughs> so, Memory Box. Let's tee this one up. On Christmas Eve, a mother and daughter in Montreal receive an unexpected delivery: notebooks, tapes, and photos from 1980s Beirut in Lebanon. While the mother refuses to open the box, her daughter dives into the memories of her mother's adolescence. I'm getting what's in the box feelings here. What's in the box? What's in the box? (laughs) Trauma. There's trauma in the box. (laughs) Sorry, everybody. (laughs) Spoiler alert. (laughs) (laughs) This is written and directed by Joanna Haji Thomas and Khalil Jorej. The film stars Rim Turkey, Manal Issa, and Paloma Vothier. So I have not uh, seen this film. I really wanted to before this part, but I was not able to get that done. Uh, Hannah, I'm going to come to you first. Um, This is very much a mother-daughter film by the sounds of it. How do you feel uh, that relationship played out? Yeah, it's always interesting, isn't it? Because I suppose a lot of the questions that I have for my own mum is just trying to understand who she was um, when she was younger. Especially what I find interesting is like, Sorry to get all like personal stuff, but like, you know, my mum met my biological father on a holiday in Tunisia uh, in, when she was in her 20s. And I know this is like teen set, but there's a whole kind of like, who is that person compared to who this person is that I've known and grown up with? And so we, we don't, we don't fully know who the person that raised us was when they were our age, we, we struggle to see them as our age when we were teens. It's like, they can't understand me, but you realize that actually a lot of the same issues that you face and kind of things where it's romance, friendships, you, you went through the same things. But what I love about how this plays out is what if your teens were during <laughs> in a war zone? What, what if your teens were in Lebanon, where there are a fight, there's fighting, there's a coup, there's a military, there's militias everywhere. How does that affect? How can you have a normal life? Uh, you know, a teen life of kind of romance, first loves, you know, smoking, getting drunk. Um, and, and I suppose like how, what, the, what the trauma we forget and kind of box up. And it's, I suppose it's a really lovely way of kind of connecting. And I know it's a mother and daughter, but actually there's three generations of, uh, there's the grandmother, 
mother and daughter at play and I really love uh, the way it explored that and the kind of framing devices for it as well. Hmm. The framing device work for you, Clarice? Yeah, I, I think so. It's, again, I think it, it's so interesting. It comes back to the same thing with Belfast about how when filmmakers are exploring uh, their own memories, you know, what are, are our memories objective? <laughs> and if they are subjective, what are they influenced by? And I think this film certainly does a better job of it than Belfast does because it has that ability to look at the mother-daughter relationship and take a step outside of it. Um, and I really appreciated that. I I think that sort of like the movie's put together a little bit like a collage and I liked it's because it's a 1980s childhood it's like <laughs> the memories are constructed so they look like the aha music video yes. you know, where he's like that's the minute I saw that I was like this is aha <laughs> take on me <laughs> yeah take on me sorry yeah it looks like that and it's like very scrappy put together I will say I think my one slight drawback about it is is because because it's like a personal story that I think there's an impulse to make sure that the film ends with a like a sense of closure, like a real firm sense of closure, which I think is maybe not as truthful to the heart of the story than it could have been, if, yeah. that, if that makes sense. Um, but I think that's just one of the things when you're making a story that's so connected to, to your own life, it's really hard to, to take a, to stand outside of it fully mm. and i think there's also the kind of uh the writer urge to give a happy ending that you might not have got yourself exactly i think that's so natural and it's so human and it's sort of to be expected from films like this mm. uh with the performances this is again uh, a mother-daughter story were they cast right and how did they play off each other uh hannah mm. Yeah, I thought they were. I thought they were great. I mean, I uh, Rim Turkey is uh, Tunisian, so <laughs> I'm automatically <laughs> gonna love. But I think what I love as well is like how, especially you know, I mean, set in Mon Montreal is a great place to have it set because obviously that's French speaking, and a lot of people, whether it's Lebanon or whatever, like because of the European colonization. So the way that they switch between French and Arabic is really quite interesting. You kind of like what things that they say, and also that kind of like um uh the fact that the the grandmother doesn't speak french and the and the and the, the granddaughter she's like doesn't speak arabic that well and there's kind of a real sense of that but i think paloma is really oh god she quite radiates with kind of just sadness she's just so lonely and you really get that from her and how like she wants to know where her mom has been and 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 and, and it's a really traumatic thing for her to experience this because because again, it's really hard when you find out things that your parents haven't told you. Like if you find out in another way, you feel some, there's a somewhat sense of betrayal that they didn't tell you about this stuff. And and I think she captures that really well. And I think what I liked about, um, so Manal Issa plays the younger version of Rim Turkey, who's the mother in it. And I mean, one, well, first of all, she's just gorgeous. <laughs> like she just makes smoking look like, look like the sexiest thing ever the way she, and she's got this gorgeous <laughs> face and I haven't really seen her anything, but she's going to be in this film, The Swimmers, which is uh, Sally El Hosseini movie that's come to Netflix about like Lebanese, it's based on a story story of Lebanese swimmers and her and her sister are playing the sisters in it. So it was a really nice, for me, introduction to her and it made me want to go back and look at old stuff. But I think, yeah, she really, 
she 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 had this melancholy about her which I really believed and I also think like yeah I think it was a really well cast movie for sure um and I love it because it's it's also like a very you know very female movie is very you really understood the dynamics and the kind of like the you, the young sense of um you know how over the top everything is for which for young like teenage mm. girls it's like oh i loved him and all this like losing your virginity and all this kind of stuff but then you also realize it's all heightened because there are literal bombs going off all around you so you can imagine mm. like you can just imagine why i can imagine why they're all so horny it's like we could die at any minute. Let's just have the best, fu- fu- let's be hedonistic. Let's enjoy ourselves the best we can. Like, I totally understand that. I think it really captured that. And just to add on what you said, Clarice, about like the visual spectacle of it, like that really, the way that they use the way it's framed in the cameras and pictures, because obviously it's using that as a kind of framing looking back. I think that is really done well, especially a scene when they're driving along uh, on a moped. It's like this romantic shot, like Roman holiday type shot. And then it's like, <laughs> guns, boom, this. And it's just like, oh my God, this is like the reality of it. Yeah, and it, it's oh. such a good portrait of like the the way that life continues during conflict. Which again, like Belfast, it's sort of interesting they're both coming out this week because I think thematically and emotionally, they're really dealing with the same things of like, we people who do not live through conflict have this weird i think idea of conflict sometimes that like you know everything shuts down in all day every day war but it's like well that's not the truth people still live their lives and how do they do that this movie shows us (laughs) because movies traditionally when it talks about these type of situations where it's the middle east or you know even belfast like i said like it's always on the battle it's Mm -hmm. always on the soldiers always on the military effort so what will you ever see is like camps where people are displaced or you see like buildings that are totally knocked down. You know, you see the refugees who come over and you think, oh God, they're really poor. It's like, you have to be really rich. <laughs> you have to have a mm. decent amount of money to be able to pay to get a smuggler to get you across the channel. Like there are all these different ways. Like they would not be able to go to Montreal if they couldn't afford it in this film. And you know what I mean? Like, so this, it's, it's, I love films like this that actually create the real, show a real honest reality of it was that you can connect and relate to these people because they are exactly the same as you. They just happen to be going through conflict right now. Um, so I, I, I can only hope watching any of these films that people just show a bit more empathy <laughs> for people's mm-hmm. current situations. I mean, it's not Lebanon, not really Lebanon at the moment, but like Sirius right next door. So, hmm. Sounds like a film that I need to get in my eyeballs immediately. Uh, but on that note, it's time for our screen, stream or skip recommendations. Hannah. Screen and then also apparently there's like a special Spotify playlist with all the songs in it and it's really good. So have a little boogie with that. I would say I'm kind of torn. I would I would maybe lean towards stream just in terms of like maybe this might not be the with everything that's coming out this week this might not be the thing that you think of watching, but if you have a spare evening, just take a chance on it. It will be nice. So I'm, I'm gonna say stream for that reason. Yeah. Well, I feel like Nightmare Alley is going to have a longer theatrical run than Merry Box. So my say is, see that festival. Who knows? It's not been doing too well at the box office. So this might be your one chance to watch it. Yeah. So as I said, triple, quadruple. If I was going to say watch one at home, maybe watch Mass at home, because I feel like that's one that you, I think that'd be the home one. But if you do, like really try and like turn your phone off, turn away from any distractions and, 
really get the most out of that film because it's really good. Mm. And don't get a snack. It's not a snack movie. Come on. <laughs> it's really not. <laughs> <laughs> so that's uh, that's us done for our reviews for this week. But now it's time to discuss our one day we're gonna actually like do a proper harmony (laughs) one maybe (laughs) let's all get singing lessons and then we'll come we'll have to do it in the same room because the delay on this makes it very difficult to do a singing at the same time but hey people aren't coming here for our singing maybe two of you i mean But hey, this week we are discussing the big topic that is, what is the perfect runtime? It was only a few weeks ago that James Cameron was saying he wanted to make a six hour and 2.5 hour cut of the same movie. Was it going to be Avatar? I don't know if I want to watch six hours of Avatar. <laughs> Avatar is never going to happen. It's like, it's like, it's like, it's just teasing. I feel like it's this the whole year. reason it's coming. The whole reason <laughs> Disney bought Fox was for Avatar. And it's like, I feel like they've just, just, mm-hmm. they are flogging this fern gully, <laughs> the last rainforest horse. <laughs> They gotta sell tickets to the theme park. Go live Avatar. But anyways, we're not talking to Avatar today. <laughs> mm-hmm. And and after that, the Batman, Matt Reeves' latest DC origin story, is reportedly hitting three hours. Get set. Obviously, film Twitter has opinions and has been sharing them ad nauseum online, but is there a better way to engage with the topic? I mean, as an evergreen yes to that question, but what do we think? Team, I'm on. Do you want to watch Three Hours of Batman? What's happening? The answer to that question is yes. If (laughs) Matt Reeves and his cast and his crew justify that runtime. And I do get a little bit frustrated with how film Twitter talks about uh, big runtimes. And it's it's so interesting. Like, this week it was revealed about the Batman being three hours long. In this same week, we've had a big Godfather celebration, rightfully so, because it's one of the greatest films of all time. That film was two hours and 55 minutes long. If nobody knew anything about The Godfather and The Godfather was released today, the immediate reaction would be like, oh my gosh, it's too long. Why would anybody want to watch film? Immediately, without having seen the film. And that frustrates me. We need to give the filmmakers a chance to justify why they have chosen to make the film that long. And I love a good 90-minute movie as much as the next guy. Um, But just the way in which we talk about it sometimes is frustrating. And I feel like it's also dependent on whatever film critic is excited for whatever film. Because I remember when Avengers Endgame uh, was coming out and that film was announced to be as long as it was, a number of comic book movie fans would be like, you know, that's awesome, you know, Avengers Endgame, the final one, the big one, you know, it could be five hours long and I watch it. And I was one of those people, admittedly. Um, so it's very much dependent on that rather than, you know, if a film is too long just because. I, I feel like people just like whiling out and doing those sorts of tweets just because. And it does frustrate me. So, yeah. The, the, Film Twitter, in terms, frustrating. In terms, Interesting. <laughs> in terms of Interesting. the answer to the question, what is the perfect film runtime? Run at least until we see the film in question and find out for ourselves, it is whatever that filmmaker deems it so. 
and I feel incorrect. Like we should. It's sixty six minutes, and that movie is The Land Before Time. <laughs> oh, what a banger! <laughs> correct answer. Correct. It's the oh, only answer. Gosh. No, I, this is yeah. Go on. Well, I was gonna say I think this is an interesting way to look at it because um, you know I think we would all agree that the filmmaker justifies the runtime. Like that's a job as a filmmaker. <laughs> and if it's mm-hmm. fantastic and it's three hours long, then no one's really going to mind. But we are exactly. looking at a trend at the moment where, you know, a lot of these blockbusters are starting to get, you know, this was not what it was like maybe even five years ago, 10 years ago, you know, that would be a sweet, you know, <laughs> one and three quarter hours. But now that, you know, this is the new trend, of very very long blockbusters i mean hannah what what do you think of that with the genre because obviously you know we can say for like an art house film like yeah sure that's going to be as many hours as it is but um are are you in favor of this new trend or are you a little bit like well reel it back (laughs) well i mean yeah 100 percent. 90 minutes is my sexual preference uh for both films and other stuff god she is so horny today <laughs> sorry <laughs> girl needs to get late <laughs> um i think we have to remember what kind of it's interesting I wrote a piece about recently about what is driving movie going and and i think franklin leonard um who is tv and film producer and founder of the blacklist uh he said the threshold is a lot higher for movie makers and distributors to have to meet in order to kind of get people out to cinemas. And if we factor in how much people are spending on it, do you, I think maybe there's an element of if I'm spending 20 quid, 20 quid per person on a cinema tickets to see Avengers Endgame or a blockbuster, I want to get my money's worth. Like I want to be there for a good few hours to warrant me going there. Um, So I wonder if that's an aspect of it. The fact that they put so much money into these films that you're putting 100, 200 million into a movie and then you're like, well, I want to show a bit more for it. Now, don't get me wrong. Some things like, you know, Endgame, I didn't feel it. I didn't feel that runtime Mm -hmm. at all. I I thought it was great, but then I didn't feel that runtime for Apocalypse Now Redux. Um, but I am aware that films that are like even just two and a half hours or two hours, I can feel the bloatedness of it. I can feel like this needed an actual editor um, to actually snip and work out what was necessary to the storytelling. Not every, if you know, not everything needs, you know, we were talking about Boba Fett. We didn't need as much backstory as we got. It could have been fine-tuned and actually had it a bit more swift and it would have felt like a like the plot was going forward and you felt like you're, the journey that you've invested in was worth worth it, you know, worth the time. So, you know, ultimately, I think, it, you know, everyone's going to have an issue. We're in a culture now where, you know, the way that now re- things are reported, um, you know, the fact that we even report runtimes is such a weird, like, it's that story, I don't know. But we over-talk about everything nowadays. So 100%, Amon, you're right. Like, watch the movie. But I think it's interesting to see what the trend is and whether it's actually, you know, again, it's all unique situations. But I do think we've, I think there's a lot of factors and variables that go into the reason why we're seeing increasing runtime. Um, and also, I think it's uh, <laughs> a filmmaker um, 
arrogance where they think that they can have all of this stuff in. Um, one thing I respect about Terrence Malick, even though he does makes very long movies, is he's not afraid mm-hmm. to cut things. He doesn't. It's like <laughs> he'll cut Adrian Brody out of his film of his like three hour oh. film <laughs> to make it better. So yeah, trust the filmmaker and hopefully they make the right decisions. I will add this: if you are that concerned about a Batman film being that long, then you can always rewatch the best Batman film of all time, at least to date, uh, which is Batman: Mask of the Phantasm, which is seventy five minutes long. So there is that option too. But I feel like you, you, Clarice, if you Me. like, yeah, you, <laughs> you, you, yeah, you. I feel like if you, you know, you, we talk about Guillermo, you love him. Mm-hmm. I feel like there is, maybe there's also an aspect of with the right filmmaker who you're a massive fan of, you could watch hours and hours of whatever they produce mm-hmm. and you'd be happy with it. Um, so that, I think that also has to be a factor in it. Yeah, exactly I think right. it's, it's so interesting you said about the the trend about because it's so much harder to get people to go to the cinema. I feel like one of the big things with these blockbusters at the moment that is like I imagine very stressful for the filmmakers is that every single one has to be the genre defining like biggest boldest most references like it has to be everything uh for everyone and I think creatively I'm noticing that well it's not even that it's more like I feel like creatively I'm noticing that a, a lot of the films that are crumbling under their own pressure are because it feels like the filmmaker was told like you have to make the definitive Spider-Man movie you have to make the definitive Star Wars movie like you have to be this has to be the be end and and I end all of everything and I think that really contributes to some of these <laughs> bloated red types because it's filmmakers being like oh my god i have to make you know that's why i liked venom too because it was like it wasn't trying to be anything <laughs> it was one and a half hours of venom because it's so because like not i don't think i don't think every every film has to have this like insane sense of like self-importance to it you yeah. know, I think that can often be a, a negative and, and you get these superhero films where I'm like, God, I just, for once, can we have one that's like not about trauma, <laughs> about I, something else? <laughs> I, it, it, you're right. Grief is, and I think <clears throat> even though I did not, Venom wasn't really to my taste. And I think it was a bit basic and generic. But what I'm saying, I think half, some of that, a lot of that is to do with the fact that, and I, I have to kind of, I suppose somewhat, I can't separate it because it's all subjective, but like what I wanted from a Venom film and I didn't get that. I feel like I'm I'm mourning what I didn't get. <laughs> and so when mm. I see this, it's like, oh, this is what they chose to do. Like, do you know what I mean? This is what they chose to do. It's like, okay, this is, <laughs> at least do it well. Like the storytelling is terrible in it, but I, I will say the Safe and Grace is the, the Venom, Tom Hardy dynamic, whatever. But like, yeah, but also that's why film is subjective. So yeah, I don't like totally hate it. <laughs> I never said I totally hated this franchise. I just said I just didn't. It wasn't to my taste. Amon, sure. sorry that you just hate Venom. Wow, you hate I'm an sorry, LGBTQ icon. Well, Amon it says a lot. I didn't want to cause a discourse. I was just trying to think of a film that was like short and wasn't about trauma. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's the, it's the well, most. It is about I could trauma. The trauma of me having to watch it. No. Um, but uh, yeah, I've. I've Completely forgotten any other point I was making. We're you talking said about runtimes. <laughs> that was it. Um, 
How yeah. long should no, I think... talk about run times? How long should a podcast be? <laughs> <laughs> wow! Oh yeah. gosh! See, tweet no, us. I do... <laughs> <laughs> I do think you know, and you guys have both said this in your own ways. But part of it again is that excitement level for whatever the film is. If you are excited about watching a film from a certain director, if you are excited about watching a film in a certain genre, you are going to be less wherever you when you hear that the runtime is two and a half hours, three hours long. Um, and I think, you know, you factor that into just how we talk about runtimes in general. I feel like any time a film is announced as being a lot longer than 90 minutes, there's immediate dismissiveness and resistance to it. And that makes me sad. We were talking the other week about, um, you know, Asian cinema and stuff. And I think about Drive Your Drive My Car, which mm-hmm. is what, like nearly three hours long. No one's having mm-hmm. these conversations about dramas. It's only the conversation is about superhero or franchise mm-hmm. films. It's like people make long movies <laughs> that are mm-hmm. outside of this thing. So why do you care? Mm-hmm. Why is it that <laughs> of an issue? You're saying that this, this, you think that this, do you think that the kind of the genre doesn't doesn't warrant that length because you think it's kind of superficial? Maybe that's what it is. Or it could be just like uh, classic DC versus Marvel bullshit. <laughs> I will say I think it's I don't I don't think it's that the genre doesn't warrant it. I think that I think we've seen so many examples of films that don't necessarily warrant it that I do get a little bit wary when I'm like, oh god, like every Marvel movie's three hours now. <laughs> Yeah, I just want to. That's not true. Want to take take a little nap? Well, like a lot that's of them, or like I guess. Well, I guess that's what I liked about Shang Chi as well. Like that was like that was like a normal movie length, right? I don't know anymore because more, it wasn't. Was it wasn't like trying to, it wasn't trying to be something that it wasn't. It was just like here's a great story, and How I long really was enjoyed Birds it. Birds of Prey. That was under two hours, isn't it? That was a, that's a perfect movie. All movies should be Birds of Prey. Be Birds of Prey. <laughs> but again, so we're, we're just be Birds of Prey. Like we're making a mono. I, 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 Speaking of ninety I really minutes, like, it's hit the one hour thirty one uh, minute. <laughs> uh, Sorry, yeah. go on. We're joking. No, no, no. I, I, I really like Birds of Prey, and you know, if a movie is really, really enjoyable and really entertaining at a certain movie length, then you know, more power to it. But if a movie is really good and really entertaining and needs two and a half hours, three hours to, you know, make it that way, then so be it. Um, I just feel like, you know, again, anytime anybody hears of films like, you know, not 90 minutes, but like two hours long, it's like, oh my gosh, how can we, we don't need that long to tell the story when you haven't even seen the damn thing yet. And that's the thing that ticks me off about how we as a culture talk about run times now should we wrap this up before this podcast becomes yes. three hours I'm, i'll make i'll make one last comment i just find it very interesting the new uh lord of the rings tv show it's going to be 10 hours of something that took 10 minutes in the original films oh god oh <laughs> so god. i'm gonna say <laughs> peter jackson did it in 10 minutes are you gonna take 10 hours to tell the same story is this what is this oh, Bombadil? Well, no, it's not. The oh, same. you mean no. that, that montage about the other the rings. forging of the rings? Forging they the cover rings. in ten minutes in the movies. Love it. Understand? Perfect. <laughs> but we'll see. I'm going with the forging of the rings. I, I, is it going to be about the forging of the rings, or like once the rings are given to you know who they're given to, we're going to be following that? 
that is more the impression it's all covered in the prologue do you not listening to Kate Blanchett I know it's in the program we see them it's like yeah and then Sauron betrayed them she covered all of it she was very concise fucking Sauron <laughs> I'm just excited to be returning to Middle Earth yeah <laughs> and on that bombshell oh <laughs> Thanks for tuning in and happy viewing via whatever medium is the safest for you. Do subscribe, rate, and leave us a review if you love the podcast. It really does make a difference. And if you tell a funny little joke, we'll read it out. We promise. <laughs> and tweet us at Fade to Black Pod if you have something you'd love for us to shout out next week. You can follow me uh, at Clarice Lou on Twitter or at Clarice Lockery on Instagram. I'm at Hannah Flint on Twitter, at Hannah Ines Flint on Instagram. And because I like to keep it simple, unlike my colleagues, I'm at a woman on Twitter and Instagram. You don't need to change anything. You just type my name, you can find me. Boom. What's your damage, Heather? <laughs> my full name is... Do you need a brain tumor for breakfast? <laughs> Some of us have long names. I don't know what to tell you. I couldn't fit it into the Twitter handle. <laughs> Farewell, film friends. It's time to fade to black. Mm-hmm.